0: Starbeams Avenue. I don't know the truth! Hello, and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert from around the world of human knowledge. Now, I want to start by thanking everybody who supports the show on Patreon. If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash Conover for just five bucks a month. You get every episode of this podcast ad-free. You can join our community Discord. We even do a live community book club over Zoom where we read a nonfiction book together and discuss it. It's so much fun. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Adam Conover And just a reminder, I am on tour once again this year If you live in Austin, Texas, come see me at the Cap City Comedy Club from March 23rd through March 25th And I'm going to have a lot more tour dates up soon, just finalizing them with my agent But don't worry, I'm going to a bunch of cities that I didn't get to go to last year And I'm so excited to see all of you and to have you all see my brand new hour of stand-up Now let's talk about this week's episode You know, you might be able to tell from the intro that I'm a pretty busy guy I'm very ambitious, there's a whole lot that I want to do in life, but, you know, like many of you, I struggle to get as much done as I want to. I feel like I am constantly behind, and I feel like it's my fault. I have this sense that if I could just buckle down and work harder, I could transform my life, I could get more done, and that that would make me happier. And so what do I do? I push myself, like I'm sure a lot of you push yourselves. You know, every single moment I'm like, how can I be using my time more productively? I got to-do lists, I got calendars, I'm reading productivity books, I live life in a non-stop 1980s-style training montage, except that instead of learning to box, I'm doing informational comedy. But recently, I've found that this approach has been, uh let's just say somewhat unproductive. Here's a recent example. I started making YouTube videos, which I'm really excited about. If you haven't seen them yet, head to my YouTube channel and check them out. I I made a couple and they were immediately enormously successful. People loved them and said, we wanna see more. And also I got a whole bunch of subscribers right away. I was like, oh my God, I gotta do more of these. So at the beginning of this year, I said, you know what? I'm gonna take it seriously. I'm gonna put myself on a schedule. I'm gonna create deadlines by which I need to have a new video script done. I'm gonna schedule my shoot date weeks in advance so that I have a deadline that I have to hit. I'm gonna hold myself accountable and increase my output. Now, if any of you are productivity nerds, you probably know that exact approach, and you're probably familiar with what came next, which is that I turned my life into a total nightmare. As the deadlines approached and, you know, the scripts weren't quite done yet, I found myself having to spend entire days crouched over my laptop, laboring over the pages. At least that's when I could get myself to the laptop because the rest of the time I was avoiding the work because it felt so terrible to be working while so far behind the deadlines I had set for myself. So I'd spend most of my time wallowing in guilt feeling like I should be writing, wondering why can't I get the work done, and then finally have to scramble and get as much done as I could in the last few hours of the day. And you know, eventually had to push a couple of those shoot days because the fact was the material just wasn't done in time. And let me be clear about something. Writing is supposed to be the fun part of my job. This is the stuff that I got into comedy in the first place to do, presumably because I like writing fun things and then filming them and showing them to you this work wasn't assigned to me by some tv network or some boss somewhere this was self-directed work that I wanted to do so why was I having so much trouble doing it maybe some of you relate to this even if you don't I hope you can empathize and part of the problem is that writing is only one kind of work that I have to do right now because even though I'm a comedian, even though I you know, got into this career so that my job could be fun, I still have to spend most of my day replying to emails. I wake up in the morning and I'm already in email debt. There's already emails flowing in and I got to start bailing the boat out right away. Get those emails out so I can clear the decks so I can finally get to the writing that I actually want to do. The result of this horrible cycle is that I started to feel like no matter how much I completed, how much I accomplished in a given day, there was always more that I should be doing. Like, yeah, sure, I started working today at 9 a.m. and it's now 7, but no, I can't relax and play a video game because there's more emails to reply to, there's more writing projects I should be doing, I gotta be making a TikTok to get my numbers even higher so I can reach a larger audience, so I can get people to come to my stand-up shows, oh, by the way, I haven't written any new stand-up in weeks, oh, fuck, and I need to book some shows so I can practice, and, oh, God, it's just never-ending." And, you know, what I had to start facing is that after 15 years of trying to make myself as organized and productive as possible, I had to face the fact that my life had just become this never-ending cycle of procrastination and guilt, and that maybe, just maybe, this was the wrong way to live. Maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe I'm just holding myself to a standard that is unrealistic and destructive to my actual life. And you know what? I'm not the only one who's been trapped by this sense of life as a never-ending to-do list that follows you all the way to your grave. The feelings that I've been having, I think are pervasive in our society. Our obsession with getting as much done as possible, with using every second of our lives as productively as we can, well, it seems to just be making everyone miserable. And in this dark moment, right, at the bottom of this bit, I found the perfect book to help me deal with and reframe my relationship to work, time, and productivity in a way that has immediately helped me and and made my life feel much more healthier and, frankly, more productive to boot. And we have the author of that book on today. His name is Oliver Berkman. He's a journalist and the author of 4,000 Weeks, time management for mortals and I really cannot emphasize enough how much this book helped me escape from some really destructive patterns of thinking. Uh, I was so thrilled to be able to have him on the show. It's one of the unique privileges of doing this show that I get to read a book and then talk to the author afterwards. So uh, I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Let's please quickly get to the interview and not waste any more of our precious time. Let's get to this interview with Oliver Berkman. Oliver, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: It's my pleasure, thanks for inviting me.
0: So I found your book so fascinating because it appears at first to fall into the broad range of productivity literature, of the books that you can get at the airport right before you catch your flight that tell you how to get more done in less time. It, it sort of, even the cover has a little bit of that look, you know, sort of reminds me of The Power of Habit or one of those books. Uh, when I read it, I was like, oh, this is an anti-productivity book in many ways that that you're almost arguing against the entire genre. Uh, do you feel that's that's apt? How do you think of it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's probably a bit of a bait and switch, you know, and and, it, and it's, um, it's partly because that was my journey, right? It's partly because I have geeked out on all those productivity books to the max and kind of. Discovered that they don't lead where I wanted them to lead, so I guess this is what what happened on the other side of that. But yeah, yeah, I, I I'll take anti-productivity book. Uh,
0: well, what is the? I have so much I want to ask you about, but just to catch everybody up, uh, what do you feel is the thesis of the book? What 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 is meant by four thousand weeks?
1: Well, four thousand weeks is very approximately the average lifespan today in the West. It's I definitely rounded it down a little bit to get to the uh, the the headline grabbing number. But I guess what I'm trying to get at in all sorts of different ways, go into more detail, but is just decided that we do not take anywhere near enough account of what it means to be that finite. Not Not just in terms of thinking about the inevitability of death and all that morbid stuff, but just what it means to have such a limited amount of time to use in comparison to all the things that feel like we ought to do them, or they could be good uses of that time. And I think that just to put it briefly, I think a lot of what conventional productivity does, productivity advice does, is that it, um, it sort of perpetuates that illusion that one day you might make yourself so super optimized and efficient, that you basically would be able to do everything that matters. And I sort of want to say, that time's never coming. But it's kind of good news for various reasons (laughs) that that time is, is never coming.
0: I mean, it's a, it's a harsh realization because you have this belief when you're trying to organize your time, I'm going to use a to-do list app. I'm going to to do a new calendar system. I'm going to start time blocking. I'm like, I've gone down this rabbit hole myself in my sort of quest to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish or that are asked of me. And, you know, since I want to accomplish the things that are asked of me, it's sort of all in the same bucket. Uh, There's this you know, hope that you have that, uh, well, I, I'm a little bit disorganized right now. It was a little bit of a struggle today, but I, I want to be better and it'll be easier tomorrow if I just figure this out. And, you know, there surely there are other people out there who have figured it out, whose work days go by in a happy blur and <laughs> then they finished at 6 p.m. and they go play with their kids or they make a nice dinner and they just play video games for the rest of the night or whatever it is. Um, like, I, I, it's hard to let go of that, uh, and you're telling me it's, it's actually never going to happen.
1: Right, and I think it's not, uh, it's not that an, an individual technique is, a, is an intrinsically bad thing, time blocking or the Pomodoro technique, I'm sure some, some people are going to be aware of. You know, it, it's, it's the agenda that we bring to them, right? It's this idea that this is going to save you. This is going to um, enable you to kind of win the struggle with time, the struggle against time, once and for all. And I guess I want to say that actually we have to sort of admit defeat in the struggle against time. If we're going to get somewhere interesting and productive and meaningful rather than constantly be fighting it and thinking that victory might be coming. Yeah.
0: Next week,
1: next month, next year.
0: Uh, It's a very counterintuitive idea, but look, uh, okay. I I just want to bring this to myself. I, I, when I read your book and I kept having that feeling of I'm in this book and I don't like it. You know, like almost every chapter was like a tonic for what I do. Okay. So like literally I was, my girlfriend was reading the book and she never reads books like this. So she was a little bit like, uh, like, oh, you, what is this format of book? Uh, but she's like, oh, I think you should read it, you know? Um, and as soon as I started reading it, like, okay, the, uh, you, you have a, uh, I, I had found myself saying to her over the past few weeks, I've been trying to get writing projects done, you know, over the last month, like really, really hard. Um, there's, there's a bunch of writing I really, really want to do. Uh, and it's self-directed writing. I'm not on a deadline except for a deadline that I, that I set myself. Um, but I also have all of this other administrative work I have to do. I'm i I'm a, you know, officer, I'm a, I'm a leader in my union. Now I have all these emails to reply to. I've got other stuff going on, et cetera. And so I've, I said to my girlfriend, oh, you know, I, I feel like I never got to start writing. I spent all day clearing the decks so I could start writing. And then I started reading your book. And literally, I don't know, page 20, the header is stop clearing the decks. And I was like, this is the <laughs> phrase that I use. How was this in the book already? Um, but this feeling of, you know, I've been I, I have found myself uh, really overwhelmed by this feeling over the past couple of years of. There's always something I should be doing. No matter how much I get done, there's always something else that if I could do it, my life would be better. I would be more successful professionally. I would be more able to achieve my recreational goals. You know, I could plan that vacation, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I've found myself sometimes at the end of a long day just unable to relax because I can't figure out what is the most optimal use of my time in order to achieve one of these goals. Even playing video games, which is like a... uh, you know, has always been one of the ways I've relaxed my entire life. I've been like, I can't decide which game to play because do I want to finish one of the games that like was on everybody's game of the year list that I should experience so I've kept up with the genre? Or should I play this other thing that I'm, you know, more interested? Whatever, I I find myself paralyzed by this decision. And I I basically found myself enveloped in the mindset that you're trying to counteract in the book. So it was a very uncanny experience for me to read.
1: That's, um, I think that's good to hear, even though you're, saying it triggered some kind of minor crisis or something. I, I think it's... <laughs> no, the crisis is already I, happening. Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it's inside my mind as well. I think, you know, I, there has been this reaction I've been so sort of struck by to the book, people saying like, it's like you're inside my head. I think it's just a really ubiquitous um, state that we that we find ourselves in. We're confronting these these sort of infinite or effectively infinite supplies of things to do, demands on our time but also just ambitions for our lives um fun experiences to have the, these kind of infinite supply chain streams are not are not um limited to kind of boring tasks and 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 burdensome chores it applies to all the all the other stuff as well all the and, fun stuff yeah right absolutely i was i'm i i am a, i have to sort of out myself as knowing almost nothing about any any video games that exist in the world, but I've been struck to learn that people consider themselves to have like backlogs of games to play in exactly the same way that I have a huge backlog of emails to to answer. Or books
0: to read. It's very similar to, oh, I I wanna read that and I heard about it and it's gonna be so good, but I need to finish this other book first. Mm. And then when you get, when you finally finish the book or the video game that you're playing Mm. and you're like, time to move on to the next one, you're like I should work on this backlog, but then you feel guilt towards it because maybe you're not actually inspired to play it or read the book in that moment, and you're you want to get through something it, else. Yeah. yeah, and then you're, and then suddenly it's become this thing that you liked has become this onerous to do list that you feel that you will never get
1: through. Right, and I think the 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 problem or the cause of our suffering there is not that there are these infinite supplies, but that we think there ought to be a way to get our finite arms around the infinite supply. So one of the ways that I talk about it sometimes I think resonates with people is like, the really liberating truth is that it's worse than you think, right? Because you think that the problem is, it's really hard to stay on top of your email, to stay on top of your to read pile, or whatever it is. In fact, it's worse than really hard, it's completely impossible. And in that shift from this is really hard to this is completely impossible. There's kind of a liberation, right? Because you don't have to try to do that, anymore. You can focus on, you can actually let yourself enjoy a book or a video game or let yourself really make progress on a work project more when, when you have sort of given up this hope that it's all part of some process where you get to some eventual plateau of perfect optimization and peace of mind.
0: <laughs> but like, it, it, again, it's very, it's very counterintuitive. Like when you write a book called 4,000 Weeks, I would expect the book to be. You only have four thousand weeks, so you got to get a lot of shit done. You know yep. what are you going to do with your four thousand weeks, motherfucker? Like you better <laughs> buckle down because you got. Yeah. Oh, how old are you? Oh, you only got three thousand weeks to go. Wow, you're fucked, dude. Work mm-hmm. hard, you know. Um, and it it's in fact the the opposite of that. Um, that the 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 notion. I th- I find the title so interesting because the. The finitude, the radical finitude in the title is actually to you the the liberating thing. So just just keep expanding on this point for me.
1: Yeah, sure. I think that's... I'm really glad you noticed that because I do think that like when we we decided on this title, there was a bit of me that was thinking, is this going to startle people so much that they kind of run away from that part of the bookstore or from that page on on Amazon and don't (laughs) buy the book? Um, And that may have happened, but luckily it has also not happened in enough cases. The there is this kind of there is this response to the idea of human finitude which is as you say you know well that means i've got to do something absolutely extraordinary with every minute to like really wring the meaning out of it and i've got you know nothing against people spending their lives doing extraordinary things but i think that to to, to take that lesson from the shortness of human life is actually sort of only to go halfway, right? Because you're still thinking, okay, maybe I can't live forever. Maybe I can't uh, do all the things, but I can become so, such a sort of optimization efficiency machine that I can do more of them than pretty much anybody else. And that's going to somehow be a bit like living forever being a bit like winning the the struggle against time and there's this idea it crops up in all sorts of traditions but like zen buddhism is a place where you get it a lot that sort of says no the problem here is thinking that there ought to be a solution to this situation the problem is is like the idea that this disease can be cured and if you can sort of let go of that even a little bit and see that there are always going to be too many things to do going to die with a really long to-do list there's always going to be a million more things that that matter that than you get a chance to do yeah again you can say well okay then the pressure to kind of cram stuff in and do the thousand and one things you must do before you die or whatever um is is relieved and you can you can sort of drop into the actual like where you are and the things you you're doing now and here and uh yeah i guess that's That's the point. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, you see that like, there's, there's a potential response to that idea, which is kind of like stressful and it's not the one I'm I'm going (laughs) for here.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I think about the times that I enjoy say, you know, reading the most, you talk about the book a lot in the book quite a bit about how reading is this activity we're constantly drawn away from by all the things we should do. And uh, you know, we're constantly worried about optimizing it. the times that I feel best about it are during the holidays every year, during that sort of like happy period from like December 21st through January 2nd at midnight, when this is the one time a year where I'm like, you know what? I don't have to do shit. This is my time. You know, especially I go visit my parents at my parents' house. You know, they just put on some, you know, the classical Christmas music. We're just like making cookies and stuff. We're not, there's no goal-oriented behavior. It's just sitting around, you know, and I'm like, oh, now I've got, all the time in the world today. You know, I'm just like, oh, I just got to fill the days. Oh, I can just read whatever shitty sci-fi novel I feel like reading, you know? Um, and the that gives me a feeling of relief. It sometimes feels like the only time during the year that I can do that. And I think it's because I sort of have that sense of the time is limited, but it's it's unbounded. I'm not like putting all of this pressure on myself to uh, to get things done. Whereas when I'm, you know, when I start being goal oriented about it and I'm like every day I'm going to read one hour and I'm going to finish 50 books this year, you know, like that kind of thing is like much harder <laughs> to, to get any reading done. Um, the problem is that the second version of it is sort of what I have to do for work. You know what I mean? Like I'm right. I do live in a capitalist society where I need to keep producing things, yeah. you know, I need to keep producing writing and comedy, things that I enjoy in order to make a living. And I have to sort of do it on a timetable often. Um, and there's a there's a lot of conflict there.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think it's really interesting that what you point out there about that period around the holidays, that's like a last vestige in some ways of a of a social rhythm that acts as a as a buffer to the mm. idea that we've just got to do more, 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 more. And one of the ones that has obviously sort of vanished. Uh, it did coexist with capitalism, but it's pretty much vanished now. Is the idea that of a Sabbath, right? The idea that one day a week, a Sunday or a Saturday. You, you down tools, um, not because you've finished everything, but just because like there's this that social reinforcement of um, like today people won't be won't be working. And I, I quote um, in the book, the writer Judith Shulovitz pointing out that like from outside, say, um, uh, Orthodox Judaism it seems really weird, the number of rules that uh, uh, that exist about the things that you can't do on the Sabbath, until you start to think about your sort of, one uh, starts to think about uh, one's secular life in which, you know, it's so hard to put down social media or to step away from the idea that things need to be done. And actually, like, if there was some social Uh, reinforcement on me that there was like almost nothing I could do including like you know maybe turning on light switches or something that might be what it takes (laughs) for us to be able to to do that so you know I know people today try to do these sort of individual things where you have like a digital sabbath or you take one day a week to do this or that it's great but it's that social reinforcement that we've sort of in many ways lost in a sort of liquid world where basically, you know, you're going to, you could be dealing with email at half past 11 at night if you, if you wanted to be. And as a result, there's a pressure to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the most beautiful parts of the book and and the book contains so many sections that really surprised me that they were in the book at all, that were uh, really beautiful ideas. You talk a lot about social life and social obligations to each other, and we often have this uh, uh, view that our social obligations to each other are constraining, that you know, they prevent you from doing what you would want to do, uh, that they, they hold you back. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way about their families and, um, uh, or other social obligations that they have. There are many ways in which they are actually constraining. Um, uh, but you write about how important it is to be in sync with other people. Uh, just, just tell me about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one way to talk about this is that the nature of the the good thing that time is, is, is not what economists, I think, usually call a budget good. It's not something where, like, you just want to have as much time at your disposal as you can. We think that that is the way we want to be. And we talk that way when it comes to sort of dreaming about early retirement or becoming a, you know, just running the show for yourself, whatever it would be actually the benefits in many cases come from come from your time being coordinated with other people because almost anything that's worth doing in some sense is going to require other people to have their time synchronized with with yours so that's something that you get in traditional societies that are governed by fairly strict rhythms there are definitely downsides to those rhythms they are constraining they can be constraining but they also mean that like you know the the sort of recreational event is gonna happen on a Sunday because that's the day when everyone's time is gonna be coordinated. It's a real sort of that's
0: when we all do it. You don't get to choose. You go to church. That's when we all go to church and then we all go to Sunday dinner and you show up and that's a constraint. It's like oh God, I don't want to go this week. But also it is a time that you must rec you can't do any work then. The boss calls you in and says hey you got to come into work on Sunday. No, I go to church on Sunday. Right, right. Right? It's like there is a benefit to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a sort of a, it's a ubiquitous experience in modern life, even for people who, for people who have pretty fluid schedules and quite a lot of autonomy over their time, like I certainly do. And I'm guessing that you do, Mm -hmm. um, to still not actually be able to coordinate like drinks with a couple of friends who you really like to spend time with, because, because is out of sync, everybody is following their own schedule. Plenty of people, of course, in the world don't have a spare minute. They're working two jobs just to keep a roof over their heads. But even the people who don't have that um, that problem still can't meet up to go for a beer because even if you have time, it's just going to be the the wrong bit of time. So it's a kind of a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a dicey argument because obviously at some point on that spectrum from total individual autonomy over time to total socially controlled time, you you know you pass from 21st century America into like North Korea or something. And you, and you can go far too far in, in right. that direction. But I don't think we're in any danger of that. I think the thing that we need a little bit more of in almost all cases is some is some kind of socially regulated time. And in a, and in a small way, families will do that for you, right? I mean, I, I became a father for just six years ago. And it's been such a kind of wild learning experience to go through that process of like, well, I wanted to do this other thing now, but I can't. And then to realize that actually there's something incredibly valuable in in being part of a a set of rhythms in that way. Something really, yeah. really special and I wouldn't have it any other way most of the time.
0: Within your family, there's a rhythm that is happening that you can't opt out of where, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I, my, my sister just had a, had a baby. So I've seen firsthand the rhythm of having a newborn, you know, every 45 minutes <laughs> you got to mm-hmm. do something. Um, <laughs> and like, it's on a, it's on a clock and that's sort of a rhythm that you live by that includes other people. And that precludes you from doing some things, but it, it gives you a rich experience with the other people. Um, and it also, I, I, I don't know, there's, there's a degree to which it, it stops you from driving yourself insane, perhaps to a degree. I mean, I've, I've worked with some people who, you know, I've had coworkers who have a kid and then you start, they start to go like, Hey, sorry, I got to go home. Like I got a kid (laughs) at home. Sorry. I know you all want to (laughs) keep meeting late past like six, but I got to go. Right. Because I got this other thing that's more important. And that's a nice thing in a way. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it provides, um, something to navigate life by, other than, you know, the mad quest to get to the end of all the things that there are to do, and and uh, that's not going to be, since that's not going to be happening. The, the getting getting all the things done. It's uh, it's it's good and refreshing and and sort of uplifting to have an alternative. I think the other thing that I thought sort of applies in a sort of obvious way with small children, but it doesn't only apply to parents and children, is how many of our attempts to sort of manage our time ourselves, things like time boxing and sort of fancy scheduling tricks and all that stuff, create this situation where, like, they almost create unwanted interruptions because they create the situation where, like, if something spontaneous happens in your day, if your kid runs into the room to tell you something exciting, or if just, like, a friend phones you, right, Uh, anything like this, that, that becomes a problem if it violates your... Your schedule yeah. for your for your day, which and it just wouldn't be a problem. Otherwise, it would be a welcome thing. So it's that kind of balance between structure and not letting the structure kind of dictate everything that is uh, like so hard to strike. And yeah, especially for people like me, historically anyway, who sort of really want to feel like we're in control of our days, it's uh, it can quickly make the day much worse than if you can uh, go a bit easier.
0: Yeah, I mean. So look, I'll, I'll give you an example of this from my own life that, so I've been trying to write, you know, I, I made some YouTube videos last year. They were successful. I want to make more YouTube videos, right? I'm like, I want to pick up the pace. I want to make them more, I want to release them more mm-hmm. often Been trying to figure out how to do that. So my first theory was I'll put myself on a deadline. You know, I'll say we're going to shoot it on this day. So I have to have the script done by that day. And in fact, I want to have two scripts done that day. Cause I want to shoot two on one day. So, uh, I started trying to write to deadline going like, okay, I got three days. Oh, I gotta, I gotta revise the script. Oh fuck, you know. And uh, what I found was I, I honestly could not do it. And uh, I, I kept having to push. I was like, okay, I'll just have one script done by Tuesday. Actually, can we push the shoot date a couple of days? It's not going to be ready, you know. And it ended up with me having like you know a, a solid week of misery trying to do this, you know. A, and especially, I would you know, wake up and say, all right, at 10 a.m. I'm going to start writing. It's got to be done by the end of the day. And I've got like 12 hours I can use to fill, you know, to finish this. Um, but I've got to like grind on it all day long, you know, and I would find out I'd end up avoiding it. And I'd, you know, uh, I'd have all these, you know, hours of distraction and I'd have self loathing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one, uh, so uh, reading, reading your book, the, uh, the tactic that I decided, is, I was like, this isn't working the tactic I'll switch to as I'm reading your book. I actually came up with this even before I got to the chapter where you propose it, was I said, you know what, instead, I'm gonna just assign myself a certain amount of writing time every day. I'll say I'm gonna write for two hours in the morning um, and get as much as I can done. And then when it's done, then I'll shoot the video, right? So I'm not putting myself on this strict deadline. I'm trying to have more of a rhythm. Um, and then, uh, so I've only been doing that for less than a week and I haven't gotten much done yet, but it's fine. I'm, I'm happier and that's good enough for me right now. But uh, what happened literally just yesterday, uh, was, I was like, okay, I'm going to get started 10 a.m. I'm going to start writing about halfway in, uh, my girlfriend who I live with started a f- like, she was not feeling well. And she said, Hey, I think I need to go to urgent care. Cause I'm having some, some pain. I just want to find out what she's, she's fine. But you know, she, she needed to go to urgent care. Right. And I said, okay, well I'll go with you because you know, if I had, if I had been on the deadline, if I had been like, I need to get this done by the end of the day, and I only have mm-hmm. this many hours to do it. That would have been like so painful to have that interruption to say, Oh, I need to go to the urgent care instead of staying here and working. But because I was like, Hey, this is just what I scheduled to do for these two hours. I can do it later in the day. I can, maybe I can write in the waiting room. I'm not whatever. I'm just trying to make some progress today. It's not so do or die. I was able to go and just sit in the waiting room with her, which was important to me to be able to do. I didn't, she drove. I didn't even have anything to do. I just wanted to sit, there, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and be yeah. present for the experience. Um, and so I don't know. I, I I experienced that very directly, where being able to, uh, be being able to stand the interruption ended up being very important to me.
1: Yeah. No. I I can totally resonate with that. I think it. You know, and it's there's so much that can go wrong in that in that attempt to sort of impose structures on yourself too 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 rigidly. Because, um, yeah. Firstly, yeah, it, it turns things you want to do into some kind of problem. Secondly, I mean, you end up sort of really resenting the person who made you follow these rules, even when that person is yourself, right? You get into this kind of like, mm. conflict with the internal taskmaster. And yeah, right. I mean, it's like you, have if you, you've lost, if you were to have refused to, I mean, it doesn't sound like it was a, I, I, I'm not clear what level of an emergency it was. But, but it, it does sound like more generally speaking, when it comes to sort of the people we love needing us right now yeah. you've 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 made a mistake in life somehow if you've built a whole structure for like living well that then means that you can't actually break <laughs> off to do things like that and there's a limit because there are people in situations where their families are always making endless demands on them and they need to be able to put up boundaries against that so it's definitely sort of uh, it needs to be a fluid situation but like this idea that we are going to get on top of time and then be the dictator and make it go how we want is going to be constantly create extra suffering by because that's just not how reality unfolds. And our control over how events unfold is is much smaller than that implies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, we gotta take a really quick break. And by the way, I'm sorry to make this like a therapy session for myself, but I'm gonna keep doing it after we get <laughs> back. Uh, I gotta talk more about my, my experience and how this book relates to it and, and ask more questions about it. We'll be right back with more Oliver Berkman. Okay, we're back with Oliver Berkman. Um, so like, again, I'm sorry to to make you my therapist. I just want to tell you <laughs> a little bit about my own work life again. Uh, and and how this relates to me, and and see if you uh, have any insight into it. Which is that you know, I was I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder from a young age, um, and I always like struggled with getting the work I needed to do done. I took medication for a long time. I eventually decided it didn't help me do the creative work that I wanted to do, um, and I've honestly been able to accomplish a lot despite the you know the the disability or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, You know, without, without the aid of med- medication, but I've realized recently that I've been doing it just by sort of pushing myself as hard as I can at every moment, just cracking the whip, mentally standing over my own shoulder going like you didn't fucking do enough today, <laughs> like buckle down, do the writing, you know, this is your chance, you got to do it, you know, go out there and... You know, uh, when I was trying to do stand up, I was like, you're going to do, you know, uh, you're going to do at least seven sets a week and you're going to go out. You know, I had a big calendar on the wall and I made X's on the calendar and all this sort of thing, you know, in order to make myself get the shit done. And I was proud of that for a long time because like, well, I actually did get a lot done. You know, I've I've accomplished a lot in my life that I'm proud of. um, And I did it through that means. But. Now I feel that I often can't escape myself. Mm-hmm. You know that I that I'm uh, I, I'm just my my that sense is always over my shoulder, yelling at myself, and and it prevents me from ever relaxing in a way that I used to when I didn't put so much pressure on myself. Um, and so I'm of two minds about like how valuable that was to do because I'm like, well, well, you know, I created two television shows and I'm a touring stand up comedian. I've, I've accomplished every sort of professional goal I ever had for myself or even life goal that I had for myself when I you know, 20 years ago. But um, I often feel that I've made myself miserable in order to do it. And uh, maybe that's maybe that's a midlife crisis. I don't know. But um,
1: uh, I, I felt that that was that I had all those thoughts while I was reading your book. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I think there is something sort of midlifey y about this stuff, not, not in a sort of specific age sense, but in the sense that Carl Jung meant that sort of idea about the second half of life, that there comes a point, no matter what, you know, in your early 30s or your late 60s, I think it could probably be, but where, and anywhere in between, where the methods of relating to your time that have served you pretty well start to be revealed as not like the whole story. And I don't think that requires us to like throw, like, say that that was a terrible mistake, or that you should have done something radically different in those times. But you get the situation where like, if you're going to instrumentalize your time to that degree, if you're going to focus relentlessly on using it really well to get places and to create things and to complete projects, if if you invest in that you have to invest in that somewhat to do anything decent. But if you invest in it too much completely, like you're effectively postponing any kind of real value in life or joy at being alive or whatever, into the yeah. future, into the future, into the future. And I just think at some point one has to like reinsert um into uh the um in, in you have to reinsert into your use of time some focus on things that you do because they are fulfilling or fun or enjoyable like right now. And that can be work, right? It's not that you're not allowed to enjoy the craft of the thing you do. But if there's nothing there except where you're headed, then clearly at a certain point in life, you begin to realise that this, you can't keep this up forever, because at some point, the end is going to come. And that's going to make postponing the meaning into the future is going to get more and more absurd. You can believe that when you're 20 far more reliably than you can when you're because like the the distant view things start to come into view yeah
0: well you 're sort of ta- this is a theme in your book that that comes up time and again that i I found so fascinating and I really related to the idea of not uh, of the purpose of an activity not being what it brings you in the future but maybe you could find purpose and meaning in it today uh, and I, f- I find that so interesting because we 're often presented with that as. Sort of the essence of maturity is being able to do something difficult because it's going to pay off in the future, not because it's enjoyable right now. Oh, it's fun to play video games right now, but if you didn't play the video games and instead you did something distasteful (laughs) and difficult, then in the future, things will be better for you, you know, and... Uh, a lot of times that's, that's how I live my life. I'm like, Oh my God, I I've got yet, you know, shooting my television show was, you know, a succession of 60, 12 to 14 hour shoot days every single day. You know, I'd shoot for 16 hours and it's misery to shoot that long. There's, there's moments of joy in it, but you know, you're, it is grueling. It's running a marathon every single day. And I remember just, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it because it's going to pay off later. Um, But it's true when that becomes The only reason you do anything Mm -hmm. Is because you think it's going to pay off later You can no longer enjoy your life In the moment at all And I've started to appreciate how infected My life has become by that point of view Like a couple years ago I got sick of, you know, I used to like when I read a book, I would put it on the site Goodreads. And I was like, I hate that site. I just want to keep track of it myself. And I made a little spreadsheet. I was like, here's what I'm going to do for 2021. Every time I read a book, I'm going to put it in the spreadsheet. I'm going to put in the date that I started it, the date I finished it, how many pages it was. I'll make a little formula for how many pages a day I read. And at the end of the year, I'll be able to add up how many pages I read <laughs> this year. You know, I was like, that could be fun, you know? And, and I did it for about a year and a half. When I got to the end of the first year, I was like, what what the fuck do I do with this number? Like who gives a shit? <laughs> like I don't even yeah. I don't yeah. even care, yeah. you know? And and I realized that what I was doing was creating some sort of like external goal that I was trying to hit, some sort of external tracking system that would enable me to say, I'm a better reader this year than last year. But what's the point of that? No one's tallying that for me. Why am I not just like enjoying reading a book? <laughs> you know, yes, like, yeah. this is all supposedly pleasure reading. Some of it's professional to like, you know, I want to learn about this or that. Maybe I'll make a, an episode about this subject I read about. But most of it is just I'm reading science fiction novels and it's just reading. Yep. You know, so so why why have I created this thing again where I'm I'm like trying I'm like adding everything up to track it and quantify it um, for some imagined payoff that I'm not even sure what it is. Uh, uh, yeah, I, your, your book really helped me, uh, figure out that I'm doing that. I know I'm not, I don't, I'm not giving you any questions here. I'm just telling you what I related to and then allowing you to bounce off. Of
1: it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy That's with fine. that. I think it's really, you know, to sort of decide, to sort of pretend that you asked me the question, what, what, what is it we're getting out of doing that? Um, we, uh, the, there is this, there is that sort of a certain kind of motivation that comes from that kind of approach which is that it that there's a reason we we like to postpone meaning off into the future there's a whole set of reasons and it's you know it's that it's that notion that that um well there's a quote in the book from the economist John Maynard Keynes who said that you know the the person who's in this mindset is always get the quote roughly right but is always trying to um attain for his actions a spurious immortality by pushing his interest in them mm. further into the future so there's this line about how he doesn't love his cat, but only his cat's kittens. Nor, in truth, the kittens, but the, only the kittens' kittens, and so on forward to the end of catdom. That's the that's the quotation. And it's kind of it's this it's this really interesting notion that on some level, to think that the that the moment of truth is always coming, and that you're building up to the moment of truth, uh, and that everything now is sort of provisional on that moment of truth is to sort of not have to confront the idea that that this is it, that there's an end point to, to all this. Um, and it manifests in other people, not you by the sounds of it, but it manifests in other people in not getting started on their big life projects, on their big ambitions, on in sort of endless procrastination. Because in a different way, you know, if you don't bring a project into reality, you don't have to confront all those trade-offs and imperfections and flaws and difficulties that but come with bringing anything into reality, you get to keep postponing. So, you know, the sort of stereotype of the person who's got big dreams, but they're not doing them yet. And then they're getting older and older and older. One, they're, they're sort of hanging on to a different version of that felt sense of, of immortality, I think. And it's unpleasant and uncomfortable to sort of realise that that's not happening and that you might as well, if you're a procrastinator, you might as well get started. And if you're a sort of productivity fixated person that you might as well take some time to relax in the midst of it. You know, it's um, <laughs> the same idea with different, very different results in the outside world, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, tell me a little bit more about how the connection between postponing and, and immortality that I, I yeah, I just want to hear more. Cause I, I, I feel like I halfway get it. Um, it's there. There is a connection there, but I'm trying to put my finger on
1: what it is. I think we don't want to. I'm quoting slightly here from a great writer therapist called Bruce Tift, but he says something like, "We don't want to have to consciously participate in what it feels like to be constrained, to be imprisoned by reality in the way that we are." Right? We know intellectually that we don't have all the time in the world. We know that we're going to die. All that stuff, but we don't want to. We don't want to go through the feelings that are associated with with that. And so we do all sorts of things, this is the theory, um, as as avoidance. And one of those things is just distraction, just like scrolling endlessly on your phone so that you don't have to sort of be where you are. But another of them is this kind of endless quest for optimization or for, you know, winning the battle with time and anything that is to do with postponing and deferring and saying like, well, the real thing is coming in the future spares you that sort of really unpleasant confrontation with the fact that like, this is it. It's not a dress rehearsal. Um, it's absolutely fine to be spending some of your time doing things that are prudent for the future. But if you go too far in that direction, you're you're just doing it. Well, at least I think I was just doing it. Maybe that's what I should say. I was just doing it to sort of, to not have to face the fact that that being here now means taking, making tough choices about time. It means maybe disappointing certain people in your life in order to do what you care about. Um, It might mean sort of accepting that you're not going to do things perfectly. It might mean just accepting in relationships, for example. It might mean accepting that a certain amount of emotional vulnerability and distress just comes from getting close to another person. So I think you do see in sort of certain kind of young male productivity person out there in YouTube and elsewhere, you see this kind of like, and certain distortions of stoicism i think uh, uh, have have been involved in this they're trying to sort of build an armor so that they can then go into their lives in this kind of invincible way instead of seeing what you learn gradually and i'm still learning which is actually like doing life fully means means not being invincible it means like being there for the for the distress and the difficulties and obviously like getting close to another person is just basically is signing up for more suffering, right? Cause ter- terrible <laughs> things are going to happen to them and you instead of previously, it was just you. So.
0: Yeah. There's a fear of, uh, of, there's a fear of getting close to someone and, and being hurt. There's also a fear of, uh, something that's lurking in the background. I think of your answer of, of closing a door by making a choice. Right. When you choose one thing, you close off possibilities of doing other things and that's painful because y- yeah, to 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 say I'm going to do A and that means I can't do B means embracing your finitude means I'm going to die and I won't be able to do B because if I you know uh, I, if you get married and you have kids then you can't do a bunch of other stuff that you would mm. be able to do otherwise. Um, but if you do all that other stuff then you don't have the experience of getting married and having kids. You have a cho- you know you you have to make a choice one one way or the other, and. Uh, yeah, a lot of times we just don't want to face that. But you write about how rich that can be an experience of making that choice. Please. Well,
1: yeah, no, I think the big liberation here is to see that it isn't really a choice between closing down options and keeping options open, because actually we're always closing down options. And mm-hmm. and so it's really just a question of becoming more conscious of something that is already true, which I think on balance is an easier thing to do than sort of radically changing your life so so one of the things i write about in the in the book based on i think my own past experience as well is sort of commitment phobia that that idea in relationships but certainly in other areas of life as well right that that you're not really deciding yet if you just sort of hang back and and wait to commit but in fact of course you are deciding you're deciding to spend that portion of your life um uh, in a state of not having committed. If you decide to spend like 10 years on dating apps, instead of settling down with someone that might be the right thing for you. I'm not saying people should all like get married at 21, but, but you're not escaping finitude in that way. You're just using up some of your life in a slightly different way. And, and it's fine if it's the right way to use up some of your life, but it's, but it's not fine if you're convinced that you're not really, doing that if you're keeping all your options open. So actually, you know, every moment that we decide to do anything, we're, we're closing down all the options for using that moment for anything else. And although it's sort of alarming, in a sense, I think the fact that it's completely non-negotiable is actually freeing, because then you get to say like, okay, I'm already closing down options, I'm already burning bridges, I'm already waving goodbye to possibilities in every moment of my life, I can't do anything about that. Nobody can do anything about that. All you can do is try to, like, you know, make some good decisions in there and, uh, and, and take some, go in some directions that, that seem promising. Um, stop me if you want to go on something else, but there's a, there's an anecdote that I repeat in the book from, um, that comes from a talk that Sam Harris gave, um, talking about how, um, you know, our lives are full of experiences. That we're doing for the last time and we don't know that it's going to be the last time, right? It's like you, yeah. it's a sort of extraordinarily alarming thought in a sense that certain friends, certain places you visit, like they may well be the last time you see that place, that person, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. And obviously you can assume yeah. that's going to get more frequent the older you get, but it's actually happening at every point. And beyond that kind of every moment is like that. Every single moment is a moment that, you're never going to get to live again and it's it's happening right now all the time even if you're 20 you know <laughs> never mind if you're getting to be like a uh, middle aged like me and it's and it's and it's really obvious that that's the case so i think that that notion is alarming but the fact that it's built in for everybody and completely unavoidable is actually sort of liberating because then it's like okay well we just got to figure out some halfway decent ways to deal with it you know
0: <laughs> yeah and and Taking the pressure, uh, understanding that and taking the pressure off can make it more enjoyable to actually make the choices. I'm thinking about, again, just in my own life, when I'm, when I'm very, very productivity focused, when I'm in a very stressful time and then I, oh my God, I have two and a half hours free at the end of the night, right, you know, and right. I don't always like, oh my God, I could do something fun. And then I start to stress over, stress out over what should I do? Should I watch a movie with my girlfriend? Should I play a video game? Should I read that? Should I make progress on that book? And then sometimes as I have so much trouble deciding, I end up just sitting there scrolling on my phone while I decide because that has the illusion of being a time-free activity right. when actually I'm making the choice to do that. Versus, again, when I'm at home visiting my parents for the holidays, it's like two days after Christmas, this like wonderful <laughs> space in between Christmas and the new year where you're just like, who gives a shit about this time? You can do whatever you want. If you have a couple hours free, should we watch a movie? Yeah, I'll watch a shitty movie. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Like it's as good as, to do as anything else, and it's and it's delightful to not put so much pressure on that decision and to just say, yeah, let's do that. Whatever, it'll be fine. It's okay if I don't do the other thing. Um, uh, so I understand that, like uh, embracing the the fact that you have to make a choice. Um, if you're if you're able to take the pressure off a bit, can be really beneficial. But you. Uh, there are so many illusions that are dispelled in your book. One that I I'd, I'd love to talk about a little bit is you have this idea that uh, you know we we have this sort of fiction that we're going to live great lives, that we're going to do something massive and world historical, <laughs> <laughs> um, that we're going to be the next Steve Jobs or whatever. <laughs> and you write that you know well Steve Jobs probably isn't going to be remembered that long either, even if if we want to use him as the example. You know, ten thousand years from now, no one will right. remember. Steve jobs, except maybe by the, the layer of heavy metal, uh, (laughs) Silicon that is like in the earth's crust somewhere. Uh, they'll be like, Oh, it seems like somebody invented something around this time that there was a lot of, but we don't know who it was, you know? Um, and and so that I found to be sort of a, a a stunning thing to try to accept because, uh, I, I don't know, that's been a lot of the focus of my life is to been try to live a life that is more significant than you know, the lives of, say, the people who the adults who I grew up mm-hmm. around, you know, so I want to do something bigger. Part Partly it's why I went into the entertainment industry. Right. Is I want to uh, be one of those people. But the um, uh, and I've often thought of ambition as a curse because, you know, you can never escape it. If you're ambitious, then you're like, well, I always want to be doing more. It can always be bigger and bigger and bigger. And. Accepting the realization that it's that there is no such thing <laughs> as a as a great as a great significant life is like startling to me. But I could also see myself just if I actually were to accept it, just like collapsing in tears, huh. and being like, oh, my God, what a relief, you know, to to finally take this weight off of myself. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what brought you to that? to to that
1: thought. Well what I'm trying to do in that section and I and I use this phrase cosmic insignificance therapy to try to sort of hint at the idea that I think it is really therapeutic is you know and this yeah. I think this is probably the part of the book that I've had the most kind of pushback or arguments with people about because people naturally say well if it's true and it's kind of hard to deny that if you sort of zoom out to civilizational time or or the history of the planet or the history of the cosmos you know by definition like nothing anybody is doing is is significant on that scale, because, uh, you know, human civilization is the blink of an eye, let alone any particular lifetime in it. It's very tempting to say, well, like that doesn't that make everything meaningless? Is that like, isn't it? Isn't it pointless that we should? W- w- wouldn't that sort of demotivate people? And what I want to say, I can see that reaction. But I think what I want to say is, why are we using as the standard of meaning, this kind of systematically unattainable thing? Like, why, why, it's yeah. why, why do you conclude that if something isn't going to matter a thousand years from now, it doesn't matter? Like, what, what, why be so against the notion of meaning in the present or meaning in the next couple of decades? Why be so intent that your name has to sort of echo through history instead of, like, make a difference right now? I'm drawing a bit here on a philosopher called Ido Landau who's, who's done a lot of work on this and sort of pointing out that it's just, we don't need to have this standard of meaning. And we know from experiences with like, you know, caring for people we love who are sick or cooking a meal for our kids, whatever it is, you know, there's all sorts of experiences or just being in nature that clearly do feel very alive, but that it will be really hard to justify on the grounds that, you know, in a few millennia, it will matter whether we did that thing day or not and I would say you know in terms of my own relationship with ambition which is present in me as well that actually it doesn't like make a mockery of that at all it frees it up it's like it's like isn't it far in your situation isn't it isn't it isn't it um like far more fun to just like try to get bigger audiences do more impressive things um create more amazing work win more awards, whatever it is, just because that's kind of a fun way to express being alive. Instead of this yeah. idea that like, you might get to a point where it was going to, where it was going to echo down the centuries. And, you know, occasionally there are Shakespeare's and Leonardo da Vinci's and they, they do echo for a good few centuries, but then you can always just zoom out another level um, in history <laughs> and ruin that, that idea as well. So I think it's not about saying life is meaningless. It's about saying like, this is a weird standard to apply of for meaning let let's apply this this kind of idea of feeling alive and doing something that just feels like it matters here and now, and for some people, that is going to be a one to many uh you know thing involving celebrity or fame and for a lot of people, it's going to involve much quieter life and that could be just as just as significant yeah yeah
0: uh, uh... But it, it's connected again to this idea of, of what are you, are you doing the thing you're doing for the moment that you're doing it or are you doing it for off in the future? You know, I keep a journal every night. I write in a I write in a five-year diary <laughs> where I, I write and then, you know, there's, there's five entries on each page for the same day for five years in the future. So as I complete, I've just completed one of these for the first time. It's very rewarding and now I'm starting a new one. I'm writing right now. To, you know, the entry that I make on January 20th, 27th today, I'll read next year oh, when, right, I right. it, uh, when I write it, when I write the next one, you know. And, you know, the joke that I've made to my girlfriend is, oh, I'm writing this so that, you know, I want to make sure that when they start the Adam Conover library in the future that they'll that they'll be able to go through the documents and, you know, like catalog yeah. them because it's going to be very important to future scholars. I say that jokingly because I know that's ridiculous. The reason that, but I feel like, you know, sometimes we have that feeling when we're doing something. Oh, I'm doing this for for posterity when really the reason I'm doing it is so I can read it later and understand myself a, a little bit, you know, or, and I'm, or I'm doing it right now to think about the, the past day.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also don't think that posterity is like a an inadmissible thing here, but it's just that idea of like, you know, sure, it's great to do this now. It's great to look back in a year's time. It would be great if a whole bunch of people in the f- near future felt drawn to, benefited from your work. It would be great if some people a century from... Right, all these things would be great. But making the condition of, there being, of these actions being v- valuable, that they're sort of going to last forever seems to just rule out so many things that we all know are kind of it's just a sort of intuitive answer really that i'm giving here it's like we all know that all sorts of things are meaningful that we can't justify in in terms of like you know a thousand years from now they're going to matter so just like let go of that i don't think it means that wanting to leave a legacy say is a is a is a bad motive it's just like it's can only be part of the mix i suppose yeah
0: yeah. Well, we have to take another really quick break. I've got some more big questions. So you want to get back? We'll be right back with more Oliver Berkman. OK, we're back with Oliver Berkman. I, I have to ask you about this. You mentioned earlier in the interview Zen Buddhism, um, but you and you quote some you know Buddhist writers throughout, but you also have uh, somewhat more complicated view of meditation, especially as practiced in, you know, the, our current time in, you know, the, what is often called the West, um, uh, and the purposes that it's done for. I mean, how, how do you, how do you feel about that strain of thought in the way that it's practiced?
1: Huh? It's interesting. I mean, oh, is, it, is like, it too big of a question? No, I no, zoom it's, in a little no bit? it's interesting. Cause I sort of, um, you know, I struggle with this. I sort of basically feel like I am a better person when I make Time to do ten minutes fifteen minutes meditation but I've, but i am it 's not a habit that ever has become easy for me it 's never become sort of that association between doing it and the benefits of it has never kind of got hardwired into my into my brain in a way that makes it um, straightforward and easy and I think you absolutely see if this is what you 're referring to, but I think you absolutely see those sort of techniques co opted in the in modern culture into like to become productivity techniques to become this kind of, Absolutely. Um, yeah, like how to develop single pointed focus so that you can X. And um, that just kind of, you know, again, it's totally fine. But if you sort of go read back into these traditions and sort of talk to people who've taken them seriously and made a life out of them, it really isn't that it is a way of, it is a, it is a way of sort of in that moment being more present it isn't like a preparatory technique to be able to like kick ass in a superior fashion later on and even just the idea that like meditation is therapeutic the idea that meditation is there to become happier which is perfectly reasonable thing but it's like there's something missing from that and 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 yet uh, and this is the other side of it that i'm always sort of mentioning as well like that that invocation to just sort of be in the moment yeah is really really hard like it's not it's actually one of those things where trying to do it seems to undermine the the possibility of doing it and so a lot of people who sort of uh say well meditation isn't for productivity they say no meditation is just like be here now and then you've got to sit there and try to be here now and of course all that happens is you become incredibly self-conscious and like fail to to (laughs) <laughs> to be here
0: now. You start thinking, am I here now? Right, am right. I being
1: Am I doing it? Am I being right, here? Right, right.
0: And, and the strange thing is that, yes, even the... So there is the whole strain of meditation theory where it's like, oh, it'll help you focus on stuff and it'll calm you down at work. And it's specifically promoted as like the antidote to you know, capitalism and, and productivity focused culture, like, Oh, if you just meditate a little bit, that'll help you deal with the fact Mm -hmm. that you're being forced to, (laughs) you know, work in all these ways you shouldn't, you have all this internalized capitalism that is making you, uh, giving you all this toxic productivity. So there's that piece of it. Then there's the folks who say, as you say, like, Oh no, the whole point is to be here now. And you're most of the time, you're not being here now you're somewhere else and you're on your phone and your mind is elsewhere and you should learn how to be here now. But then what you point out is, no, the truth about being here now is that you always are. Mm-hmm. That even when you are distracted or what, even when you're scrolling on your phone, you, that is all that there is to be, is here now. Um, and what you're really missing, if anything, I suppose, is the realization that that, that is where you
1: are. Again, it's this idea, it's like, this isn't, it's, it's so much, I think, so much more transformative to sort of become more conscious of what's already true than... than it is to sort of relaunch your life adopt a completely new mindset it's just like yeah and so for me anyway that understanding that it all happens in the moment including all the attempts to escape from the moment is is kind of in itself a big sort of i can feel my shoulders drop and i can feel myself exhale just remembering that that fact rather than you know, turning this into another thing where I've got to use my will and my self-discipline to try to, um like, change who I am. Right. Yeah.
0: Right, I, I I feel like I internalized internalized internalize this idea where oh okay if I started meditating okay if I really <laughs> did it and okay I'm to, no I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it every every day I'm gonna wake up I'm gonna meditate I'm gonna start with five minutes but I'll work it up so I'm doing it till, for an hour and I'm gonna do it every single day and then once I do that if I do that for a couple of years then I'll finally be living mm-hmm. then I'll finally be living in the moment and I'll be aware of everything around me and I'll reach enlightenment and da 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 da. And that's bizarre because, again, when you actually read, you know, people who who uh, you know actually understand this stuff, they're like, no, the whole point is that you're fucking doing it every moment of your life. Right. Then there's no escape right. from life.
1: Right. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and well, if you haven't done this, by the way, what you actually need to do to bring come back to our discussion about social rhythms and the pressure of your surroundings is to go to like Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, or a number of other places, and do like a five-six day Retreat, yeah, where you find that you turns out you can meditate for nine hours a day. In some sense, if every single person around you is doing it, and that's what the schedule is, (laughs) and they make it easy, and you get some really nice vegetarian food at the end of the day and at lunchtime, whatever. And um, you know, it it's that is another example of like how how these social rhythms can be everything when it comes to that stuff.
0: Ah, oh, and is and it's actually helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've done this a couple of times, just sort of just sort of week long things, not not there. They do a three month, I think. So like, there's some serious mm-hmm. hardcore meditation that I am not, um, I don't maybe have the guts for. But those sort of one week type uh, things isn't uh, really kind of. It, again, it evidently didn't make the daily habit stick in my case, but but it, um but they're sort of profound. And, and you you learn things about yourself and about reality and it's not effortless but it's effortless in the sense that like it doesn't take your will once you've signed up and like yeah. booked the train or the plane it's like it just <laughs> happens naturally i i recommend it heartily
0: how did you as a productivity geek who you know has uh, presumably read all the books and tried all the systems and and done all the calendars how did you start changing your way of thinking? How did you come to these, these very radically opposite ideas?
1: Well, it was definitely through, it, it, it was definitely one of those things where you go so deep into something that it become, that you become disillusioned with it in, in mm-hmm. a way that maybe other people don't, don't get to do. So one of the things I did is I wrote this column for years for the Guardian weekly column, one of the things in which I was that I was doing there was like testing out these kind of books, reviewing the putting the systems into practice, not the only thing, but I did a lot of that and wrote about it. Um, which, by the way, is kind of psychologically a bit weird, too, because it sort of enables your worst habits when you're writing about it for in a in a context like that, because it's for work. So you can sort of indulge your your neuroses. But one of the things that happens there is like, if you've tried out a hundred ways of organising your time and none of them have brought you to this kind of beautiful place of total salvation and and, uh, and unbroken peace of mind, you begin finally <laughs> to wonder if there might be some problem with the, the question you're asking instead of the fact that you haven't yeah. found an answer. Um, and obviously most people don't get to test out a hundred of them because they've got real jobs. And so um, that was really the it was that process of of really going into it and and sort of through the fact of getting sort of all the way through that beginning to to sort of reach the kind of crisis point where you're like well none of this is working it, it took a lot to sort of get it through my get it through my thick skull but that was that was where that started then there were as i write in the book like one or two moments that were sort of crisis points in that where i had a sort of epiphany or whatever but Really, I think the most important thing there is just to sort of there's something incredibly powerful in sort of getting fed up with all that and with yourself as well. Right. Sort of getting fed up with your own bullshit about it and your own sort of like endlessly refreshed enthusiasm for finding the the one answer. And you're like, okay, this is ridiculous. Then there's space for other things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It it's something that I've almost noticed just following you know the world of like I I read so much productivity content I'm always like uh, you know the 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 way I can figure out that I'm procrastinating from something is I start reading <laughs> about different to do list apps you know yeah. um and I've used the same to do list app for twenty not twenty years maybe about ten years no which one and I I use things yeah me too the app things no, carry on, yeah sorry. and it's <laughs> I still like talking it, about uh, this stuff know, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's fun. I, 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 I've used it for that long. I never feel like I'm using it right. Um, and, but I'll read about other ones and I'll go, no, nah, I'm just going to stick with the one that I have because I have this sense whenever I read the productivity writers, they're never happy either. Mm-hmm. Like Even the people who are still full on in it. And uh, have not gone through the conversion that you're talking about. they're still always like, well, here's what I was doing, and I did that, and I found it didn't quite work, so I adjusted it this way, and I started like keeping everything in Obsidian or like Rome Research or whatever the new thing mm-hmm. is that these you know people are are writing about. Um, and you can tell from the outside that it's a that it's an endless quest. Um, and uh, you, you know, there was a really great piece in the new, in the New Yorker like a year ago, I think, that pointed out that. Like if you're looking for uh, most kinds of app, there's just one that does the best. You know, you, you want you want a good email app, you can just sort of use this one. Mm. You want a good calendar app, you can just sort of use this one. To do list apps, nobody agrees on which one is best, and everyone's constantly cycling from one to the other. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's it's because the quest to tame this stuff. Is ultimately self defeating, and maybe we should just recognize this and stop trying to solve it technologically.
1: You know, I think that's right, and you f- and you especially find that with these sort of—I forget what the generic name is for them—but these sort of apps that are designed to be one app to do everything in your life. You see people sort of cycle through this this hunt for the single for the single product that's going to uh, that's yeah. going to that's going to solve everything. I have to say. My way of finding peace with an interest in productivity stuff has not been to walk away completely from ever having anything to do with that stuff, but rather to try to be a bit more accepting of the fact that, like, yeah, I'm always going to have an interest in this. I'm always going to be tinkering with my system. It's not going to approach a kind of uh, perfect final uh, form. And yeah, one hopefully minor track in my daily life is going to be making little sort of tweaks and modifications and and that's actually a different way of finding peace in all that right it's like it's it's no longer this like okay this is it no no this is it no no this is it it's like no it's fine it's like i'll experiment with that and things come and go and that's fine it's just like a it's a hobby and as long as it doesn't completely obliterate my uh actual productive <laughs> output then like fine you know
0: well, so let, let's wrap this up with a little bit of, of concrete advice, which you, you helpfully offer in the book um, and some of which I've I've tried to take. But for folks listening who have felt in a similar state to me where it's like, oh, my God, I'm just constantly bombarded by so much that I have to do and I uh, I, I never get to the things that I actually want to do and, and et cetera. What, what do you suggest as some approaches that uh, you know, accept your finitude, your, your radical lack of immortality um, to, to build a, a life where you can actually get some shit done, yeah. but be a little bit less miserable about
1: it. I love this idea the phrasing of this comes from a, a creativity coach called Jessica Abel, whose work I really admire, but this idea of paying yourself first with time. So like there's this famous idea in personal finance. If you want to save and invest money, you've got to take it out of your paycheck the moment you get it. And then, use the rest for your expenses rather than uh, hope that there'll be some left over at the end mm-hmm. put away. And it's exactly the same with, with time. It's the opposite of clearing the decks. And so if you were, were going to do this on a kind of daily basis, on the level of the day, it might be a question of saying, like, there's some work project that I really care about or there's some creative pursuit that I really want to pursue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for however long. Might be an hour, but it might be five minutes you know first, and I'm going to see that the challenge is not clearing the decks to get to the point where you finally get the time for that thing. The challenge is learning to handle the anxiety and the discomfort of knowing that the decks are not clear that you're doing yeah. that that you're doing that hour anyway, even though there are emails in the inbox, and of course, this all depends on specific professional situations and some people like gonna get fired if they don't answer all their emails within the first 10 minutes of the working day but just that general philosophy that says if something matters you have to find a way to do a little bit of it now in the thick of infinite other demands on your time and infinite other possibilities rather than thinking that you're ever going to get to this point at the end of all the, the little stuff where the time will open up, and you can, and you can plunge into it. And that is an idea, obviously, that you can apply to how you organize your day, how you think about your your year or your life. Um, you know, not putting all the things off, not putting things off for retirement. Uh, um, so it's it's a kind of it works on all those different different levels. So that's, and that's you can one do of that
0: them. with your you can do that with your relaxation or your recreation time as well, and say uh, at, at this time I'm going to fuck off from work and and watch a movie or go to the park with my kid or whatever it is, even though, oh my God, there's other stuff I should do. No, this actually takes precedence. And it requires you to prioritize, actually prioritize.
1: And it, yeah, absolutely, exactly. And it requires you to realize that like, to adjust your expectations and realize that it's not gonna feel great in the first, like the first few minutes. If you're the kind of person like so many of us are who's trying to maximize... The value of your time all the time, and you decide that you're going to read a novel for twenty minutes at a certain point, or go on a walk in the park, or whatever. Like that's going to feel uncomfortable at first. And if you yeah. and if you respond to that by saying like, "Oh, well, this was a bad idea. Then I better go back to work." You're never going to get to the the value of that because the flywheel is turning too fast. We are ready to maximize our time. We don't want to fall back into um, the present experience of where we are. So like not expecting it to feel great at first, I think is a really, is a really important tactic there actually.
0: <laughs> well, uh, look, I can't recommend the book enough to any, um, harried creative types who have lived in this misery as, as I have, um, uh, folks can pick it up at our, our special bookshop, com slash books. If they, if they want to read 4,000 weeks, where else can uh, people find you, Oliver?
1: Uh, my website is oliverberkman.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter more than I should be, probably, at at Oliver Berkman. So those are the places, right?
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you once again to Oliver for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. Once again, if you want to pick up the book, you can do so at factuallypod.com books. That's factuallypod.com books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Rodman, our engineer, Kyle McGraw, and everybody who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. I'm going to choose some of your names at random. I want to thank Harmonic. I want to thank Kel Crow. I want to thank Kelly Lucas. And I want to thank Lacey Garrison. Thank you so much for supporting this show if you want to join them head to patreon.com slash conover that's patreon.com slash Conover of course i want to thank andrew andrew wk for our theme song the fine folks at falcon northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming pc that I'm recording this very episode for you on you can find me online at, at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media or at adamconover.net for tickets and tour dates see you next time on factually thank you so much for listening
1: Star Bands a
0: podcast
1: <clears throat> a podcast network